welcome to this World Extreme Medicine live session on vaccine confidence in COVID-19. I'm delighted so many of you could join us. My name's Dr. Will Duffin. I'm a jobbing frontline GP and WEM medical director, and I shall be your host this evening. Mass vaccination against preventable infectious disease has been arguably one of humankind's most effective medical interventions. The numbers needed to treat and side effect profile of so many preventative drugs that I prescribe in my daily practice as a GP, things like statins, antihypertensives, antiplatelets, they're frankly poultry in comparison uh, to vaccines. And the scientific community knows this, but how do we communicate this to the general public? And as Fiona Godley writes in the BMJ, Vaccination is also one of the greatest tests of societal cohesion and public trust. And that, my friends, is what we're here to explore tonight. Guided by the insights and formidable expertise of Dr. Pauline Paterson, who's an assistant professor and co-director of the Vaccine Confidence Project at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and also a scuba dive instructor, and... Beata Kampman, who's a clinician in paediatric infectious disease. She's professor of paediatric infection and immunity and director of the Vaccine Centre at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine as well. And get this, a former ballet dancer. Pauline and Beata, please say hello. Good evening. <laughs> and uh, Pauline, you've just got a COVID puppy. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, both my children were really excited. It's a silver lining to COVID is when people ask them, oh, what did you think about lockdown last March? They were happy because they got a puppy. So, so you know, there's a little silver lining there to it all. Uh, a puppy just makes everything instantly better, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, uh, Beata is going to share some slides with us. She's going to give us a short intro into the activity at the vaccine center with a focus on where we are now with covid vaccines beata over to you thanks very much will and welcome to everybody i can uh, recognize uh, people in this talk or in this webinar in this group from all over the world i've seen people from africa even here so welcome uh, friends from africa i work in west africa for part of my professional existence in west africa and uh, I am also a pediatrician, so I've had plenty of conversations around vaccines uh, with parents. And now in the COVID era, that's all switching a little bit to other age groups, but it's equally important. So what do we do at the vaccine center? I take it you can see my slides okay. If you can't, let me know now. Yeah, um, so we like to talk about vaccines and we like to talk with people who are doing vaccine research, but also with people who might be out there asking questions. And the way, oops, oh, this is good. Oh, here we go. The way we've made kind of some of the information uh, more visible is that we've recently also done some animation clips. So sometimes it helps to explain uh, facts and figures to people that you might be having vaccine conversations with by using animations. And, you know, from the start of this year, the questions that have been asked by various people also in the media is like, how do clinical trials work? So we made a quick animation around a clinical trial. What's in a vaccine and how do we actually know 
that vaccines are safe. So we made these clips and you're welcome to access them all um, on the website from the vaccine center. There's lots and lots of uh, information about different types of vaccines before we even got to the point of really rooming in on COVID. So when COVID really started to hit, we were wondering what contribution the vaccine center could best made and make. And, you know, I'm not the person who will design a vaccine or develop a vaccine. I've done plenty of vaccine trials, but I felt what we really needed was a sort of overview of the landscape of what's really going on. And that's where um, the, my team, and in particular, Dr. Ed Parker, who's actually on this uh, video here as well, um, developed this tracker that you can all access. And uh, it shows us which vaccines are being developed by whom and on what, uh, on what technical platform. You can see the whole of that landscape, what happened with the clinical trials and where we are with that development. You can see that we've now got about 70 vaccines and clinical testing. You can click on these boxes, whether you're interested in a particular phase or a particular type of vaccine. So it's really interactive and gives you a good summary. And that's all thanks to Ed because he is the risk kid behind this. We've also mapped what trials have been done because as we all know, it's quite difficult to keep up with this flurry of literature that is flying across our desks. And here we've kind of summarized which uh, vaccines have been trialed, what age groups and what groups, where they've been done. And actually, if you really want a deep dive, you can go straight into the hyperlink of the um, trial registrations. And there's this map here also that shows what goes on. You can select your favorite vaccine and you get all this overview. And then if you want to see the data, you can also select which trial are you interested in, what is in it, and what has it actually shown. And you can compare vaccines against each other as well, which is something that uh, patients might be asking you. And you can really sort of evidence uh, base some of the information that and some of the conversations that you might want to have with your patients. I'm not saying that's all that matters to vaccine confidence, but sometimes it's easy to have a good tool that you can access um, and you know draw some information very quickly. So where is it all at? Um, at the moment, we're in the position that we've got uh, two RNA vaccines licensed and in use. We've got three non-replicating vectors, four inactivated and a protein subunit. And if you see this rather well-filled pipeline, many more vaccines will come our way and uh, we will be confronted with many more questions about it. And um, to just put that into the global context, if we're looking where vaccines are currently being given and uh, uh, per head of population in particular, you can immediately see that there's an issue here. So even within Europe, there are patches here where the same vaccines should be available, but they're not as uh, prominently rolled out. And what is really striking is that there's this huge gap of uh, vaccine rollout here in Africa, and that raises uh, an enormous uh, question of equity in my mind. But uh, it will also raise questions of acceptability because whether the vaccines are equally acceptable in Russia as they are in China or as they might be in France, that's a totally different question. And this is where I'm delighted to share this session with my colleague uh, Pauline Patterson from London School of the Vaccine Conference Project, where she's the co-director. And I'm really pleased to hand this over to Pauline now to introduce us into the whole concept of the vaccine confidence. And I look forward to our questions and discussions. Thank you. Over to you. I stop sharing. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Beata. Yes. Yeah, so uh, yes, over to you, Pauline, to tell us more about what 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 is vaccine confidence. Thank you so much. 
So um, as the WHO Strategic Advisory Group of Experts Working Group on Vaccine Hesitancy, they define vaccine hesitancy as a delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccines, despite an availability of vaccination services. Vaccine hesitancy is complex, it's very context specific, and it varies across time, across place, and across vaccines. It includes factors such as complacency, so a lack of perceived need or value for the vaccine, for example, if the vaccine preventable disease is not considered as serious. Um, it's convenience in terms of a lack of convenience in terms of access to the vaccine, uh, not just geographically, but if it's difficult to book an appointment, if you have to wait a long time, if it's expensive, so, so multiple factors there. And then confidence as well, this lack of confidence, which, which isn't just around confidence around the vaccine, but also around the provider, the manufacturer, and around the process. At the Vaccine Confidence Project, we developed a vaccine confidence index to track public trust in vaccines around the globe. There are four key components to this. Vaccines are important. Overall, I think vaccines are safe. Overall, I think vaccines are effective and vaccines are compatible with my religious beliefs. And we ask these statements with a Likert scale. So people will respond with, from this scale from strongly agree, tend to agree, tend to disagree and strongly disagree. And what I'm showing you here is our, our latest and largest study to date where we compared our data from 2015 to 2019. So this is over 284,000 individuals in 149 countries. And what you can see, it just the, here it shows um, that A is uh, looking at vaccines are safe and respondents who strongly agree. And, and the A here is 2015 and with the B it's uh, 2019. And what you can see is that it varies by country, but even when you look at a country, it will vary within a country. It varies. Uh, and also it varies over time. And this is just a, a snapshot of these two examples. Um, so you can see in Europe, confidence was low uh, by the, the dark oranges. You can see that people are less likely to strongly agree that vaccines are safe. And although it's improved over time, so it's got better in our last survey um, and it's improved in certain states. So France, Italy, Ireland and Finland, there's still there's still a way to go. So. What's great about doing a global mapping, although it's it's quite um, it's a short survey to, to understand, but by by getting this, you get an indication of the countries can compare how they're doing compared to other countries, which they weren't able to do before, and and also you can get a snapshot to see are there any areas where we need to build trust or we need to understand more what's going on, and in terms of deployment of a vaccine for COVID. This can give you an idea as well of any areas that might have issue, underlying issues where it might be a bit more tricky to roll out a COVID vaccine, let's say. Uh, there's been a number of studies already looking at COVID vaccine acceptance, either yeah, novel COVID vaccine acceptance in, in members of the public. And, and these are just an indication of what some of them have said in terms of people, the proportion of people in these surveys that are willing to accept a vaccine. Um, this is just a, a few of them, it's not representative, but just to give you a flavor of what's happening already. Um, so there's a range of 60 to 89% of acceptance, but this will depend on, on who's being asked in these populations. 
I'm sorry, because I think on um, Apple, the countries have gone to the wrong places. I'm sorry about that, but uh, for some of them. So it'll depend on the type of question that's being asked and when people are asked. So some of this will change, especially with new information, new context. So if you know, what's happening in a country at the time and, and what's happening in the media as well, will, will affect how people will answer this question. So bear that in mind, but it does give you an indication. Um, as part of the Health Protection Research Unit in Immunisation, funded by the NIHR, the National, in, um, the NIHR, National Institute of Health Research, I've got two colleagues here with me as well, I noticed, Sadie Bell and Sandra Munijak are, are here as well. Uh, so we conducted this study uh, where we asked parents and guardians of young children, well, the initial purpose of this study was to look at um, what their experiences were of vaccinating their children during the lockdown in the UK. And because we were doing this, we thought, well, let's find out their, their kind of opinion on whether they'd accept a, a novel COVID vaccine. So, so we asked them and 90% of parents responded they would accept. And their main reasons for accepting were to protect themselves, to protect others, to protect their family, to stay safe for their children, to stop the need for social distancing. And then when they were kind of hesitant or unsure about whether they wanted to vaccinate, their main reasons were concerns around safety of the new vaccine, that it is a new vaccine. And we've seen this with other studies where people are a bit more cautious with new vaccines. But here, the process has been rushed as well. So there's concern around that. Concerns about not having enough evidence. I mean, it's a new disease, let alone new vaccines. Um, people not wanting the vaccine because they're not in an at-risk group. So, so it's really important, and this is why we do this research, is you think people don't want it for specific reasons, but actually they just want to um, want the vaccine to be available for people who need it more. So, And also there were some concerns around the lack of effectiveness of these, this novel vaccine, these novel vaccines. Uh, some really key findings were that Black, Asian, Chinese, mixed or other ethnicity, the BAME, were three times more likely to, to not uh, accept a novel COVID vaccine. So to state that they wouldn't accept one compared to, to the white, white um, ethnicities. And also lower income households were more likely to reject a novel COVID vaccine. So as I was saying, the main purpose of um, our study was to look at views and experiences of accessing routine childhood vaccines. And I thought I'd include this here because as well, we've done some studies on, for example, health, healthcare worker flu vaccination programs and, and why some healthcare workers haven't vaccinated against flu. And it's not just because they don't want it. <laughs> that's not the main reasons. There, there are some, of, there is some of that as well, but, and here we also saw, so one in four parents had a, experience issues or difficulties with accessing routine childhood vaccines. So it wasn't that they didn't want it, it's, you know, maybe they called and or they got a text message saying it had been cancelled or that the text message said don't come to your GP because of lockdown. So it's a bit of confusing messaging, uncertainty, is it happening? And also what measures have been put in place to keep patients safe, a lack of clarity around the vaccination services, difficulties in organising the vaccine appointment. So whereas normally they would get a letter or they'd be able to book in their next appointment, not being able to book in the next one and, and fear of, of catching coronavirus or their child attempt catching it. But these fears were alleviated and actually the parents that we spoke to, so we surveyed and interviewed, 
were relieved when they did go and they vaccinated their child about the experiences they had and how um, COVID safe they felt. That the, that the GP, they waited outside, that they didn't have to open the door, that there was PPE, that there were less people waiting in the waiting area, that sort of thing. So they felt reassured and they told their friends as well. And um, I thought it was really important during this also to, to give you a flavour of how does someone come to a decision around vaccinating. So, I mean, it might seem more simple than this. Some people do go ahead and just think, okay, I need to get a vaccine, fine, I'll get it. But there are these, this mod model visualises determinants of vaccine decision-making that are particularly relevant in predicting vaccination decisions. So on the left here, you see information, such as information campaigns, education, recommendations, media. Now, information is translated to representative uh, representation of risk. So there's the risk of infection and there's a risk of a vaccine adverse event. And then there are these modifying factors. So attitudes, identity, injunctive norms, what you should do, descriptive norms, what others do, habit, if you've vaccinated previously, you're more likely to vaccinate again. And then these barriers that I was talking about, the convenience, the cost, time, effort. And then there's an extra jump as well to go from you intend to vaccinate to actually vaccinating. With the internet and social media, individuals are more informed, more empowered than ever before. However, with all this information also comes misinformation and conflicting information as well as information overload. And with social media and the internet, concerns can spread quickly and far. And there was a study done including people in, at the Vaccine Confidence Project that looked at online misinformation around COVID vaccine and it was shown to influence people's intentions on vaccinating. People were less likely to intend to vaccinate after being exposed to vaccine misinformation. With every outbreak is accompanied a wave of information and with information comes misinformation. Dr. Tedros Adhanom, the Director General of WHO, warned against an infodemic of rumours and misinformation that needs to be fought alongside the pandemic. Uh, what can we do about it? I'm moving on to the more positive kind of solution-based bit. So WHO have created this great website, you should have a look, I mean it's quite amusing and helpful hopefully, of myth busters and with some informative infographics. So, so for example if someone is worried um, or thinks that garlic can help, there's no evidence that eating garlic has protected people from new, new coronavirus. So there's a lot of these different infographics as well, these myth busters. However, it's worth being aware that scientific research and psychology has said addressing misconceptions is really difficult. Mere mention of a myth, even its refutation, can actually increase risk perception of the reader. In, especially if the refutation of the myth is very strong. So you have to be very careful when, when you are communicating around misperceptions, not to, I mean, it's very difficult really. And even talking, yeah, even if you have a sentence or two saying this myth is incorrect, the reader will possibly accept that information as they're reading it, but they may leave with a higher risk perception of that vaccine. So. Yeah, it's a bit tricky, but I recommend going to this website that explains a bit more how to go about it. 
And also in terms of getting information about health, um, although people go to the internet, they don't necessarily trust it. So, so this was looking at, so in um, light gray is where respondents would go to find medicines information. So as you can see, the internet here that's lower, quite a lot of people go to the internet, so mostly to the GP and pharmacy. But when you look at trustworthiness of the same sources, they don't trust the internet. So that's quite reassuring. They trust the GP, they trust the pharmacy, they trust the local hospital. In terms of addressing vaccine hesitancy, healthcare providers remain the most trusted advisor and influencer of vaccination decisions. There's been a lot of studies on this. We conducted a systematic review looking, yeah, lots and lots of studies showing this. People are more likely to vaccinate if a healthcare provider recommends to vaccinate. Health, vaccinated healthcare providers are more likely to recommend vaccination to others. But in addressing vaccine hesitancy in their patients, the capacity and confidence of healthcare providers are stretched. So just to finish off before our questions and discussion, it's vital that vaccination rollout of campaigns not only ensures equitable distribution of vaccines according to need, but also it's essential for government, public health officials and healthcare workers to reassure the public with transparency, accountability, timeliness, to listen and engage with stakeholders and the public, not just communicate out, but listen and discuss, and to acknowledge concerns. These concerns are real. They need acknowledging and addressing concerns when they arise. Thanks so much. I look forward to the discussion. Thank you so much, Pauline and Beata, for sharing your thoughts with us there. That's that's really excellent. Now, everyone that's uh, that's tuned in on Facebook Live or Zoom, we want to hear your thoughts. We want to know what you think. What, if you've got any questions for our two um, London School uh, professors, so please fire those in now. While you're gathering your thoughts, I thought we'd just do a quick poll. So uh, this is only for people on Zoom, I'm afraid. I'd be interested to know. Um, have you had a consultation with a patient in the past month or so that you've treated who has expressed doubts or concerns um, about whether they would accept a COVID vaccine? Is this something you're seeing in your clinical practice at the moment? Okay, let's see what you thought. So 78% of you uh, are seeing this every day. That's very, very interesting. Okay, um, who out of those of you who are health workers, have you had your vaccine yet? Have you been vaccinated? Yes or no? We know if you're in the UK, lots of health workers, including myself, I've been very fortunate to have both doses of the Pfizer vaccine, um, but the rollout across the, the globe is, uh, is variable. So just tell us where you're up to. Have you had your vaccine? Okay, so 60% have not yet to have their vaccine, 40% have had it. Okay, that's very interesting. Okay, final question. Those of you that haven't had your vaccine yet, are you planning on having it? So very interesting. So 82% of you are very keen. 9% aren't sure yet. And 4% say no. So that's really interesting. So we do have some people who um, uh, have a lower confidence around vaccination here. And it'd be really interesting to, to hear your thoughts, actually. Um, uh, Be Beata and Pauline, what, what do you make of, of that poll? 
Well, to me, it shows that uh, the people who are, and I can see from the list, there are lots and lots of healthcare professionals, uh, you know, doctors, nurses, uh, also students, that they are very highly motivated to get vaccinated because I think that is exactly the group that has seen all the fallout from the COVID pandemic in their own practice. And, and I think that's a huge motivator. Yeah, and what I see as well is, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you could see and go, oh, well, only 40% of you have been vaccinated. So 60% of you don't want it, but that's not the case. You want it, but you just haven't been offered it or you haven't had the chance to, to go to your appointment yet. So. It's interesting, we often assume that all health workers would be um, wanting the vaccine, but actually there's a quite a 13% there who are, you know, aren't quite actually convinced themselves. So I think that's, that's very interesting. Mm. Yeah, and we, we mustn't ignore that, you know, yeah. because and I'd love to hear from those who definitely say no and the ones that are not sure. So, you know, there are people who can maybe uh, yeah that would be great so please share in the uh in the chat box if you're not sure about the vaccine yourself please tell us why what what are your thoughts around this and also have you've had a patient where you've had an interesting conversation around the covid vaccine um please share um what kind of concerns your patients are um are uh, are raising okay so um well, the, the questions are, are coming in now and people are gathering their thoughts. Uh, I'd like to um, start with, and, and let's, let's start with you, Pauline. Many people will be familiar with the term vaccine hesitancy. That was banded around for, for many years. And, and now we've moved on to vaccine confidence. Why the change? So, so actually, the Vaccine Confidence Project, we've been going 10 years. We've got a 10 year anniversary this year. And, and um, Heidi Larson, the director, and myself, they came up with the Vaccine Confidence Project. And the reason we went with confidence rather than hesitancy is a, we thought it was more positive. Let's go with positivity rather than focus on the negative. And also you don't want people just to not be hesitant. You want them to be confident. You want them to have trust and you want people to want the vaccine. Not that, um, yeah, what our main thing now is to listen. So we, so in our work, we listen to reasons why people aren't vaccinating. We're not there trying to convince people to vaccinate. We're there to listen and understand and then have those reasons addressed. Okay, thank you. So I'd just like to move to Helen Skiro's question. I think this is really pertinent. So out of that 13% of health workers who are less sure about vaccination. Many of them may be pregnant women, and there's been lots of safety concerns raised in pregnancy. So just it's more case we we don't know. And I, I understand this is uh, one of your areas of expertise, uh, Beata. Where where are we up to with regards to whether pregnant women or breastfeeding women should be offered mm -hmm. the COVID vaccine? Yeah, well, thanks for that question. And, uh, you know, I did a Q&A with uh, the nursing staff in our own hospital on Monday and the issues around pregnancy, fertility, lactation, those are really things that, that trouble, especially young women or women of childbearing age. And I'm not saying the men are not troubled by this, but I get it more from the female nurses. So, you know, um, I think we have to say that uh, because there were no pregnant women included in the vaccine trials, we don't have safety data. So we have to argue this from first principles. And the first principle would be biological plausibility. So how likely is it that any of the ingredients in the vaccine will make it across? And the only way that's been examined at the moment is really in animal experiments. 
And we know that the RNA, and I can see there's a, a, a comment here on whether you know mRNA can lie around, etc. So it's really relevant. It degrades so quickly, which is one of the reasons why this vaccine has to be kept at minus 80. So I don't want to give a talk about the various vaccines here, but I think we have to acknowledge that the safety database in pregnancy is very limited, uh, that uh, it is a risk-benefit ratio. And if I was a, a very exposed healthcare worker to COVID who would maybe also have additional risk factors, I would have a more likely you know, decision to take this up as opposed to someone who maybe thinks their pregnancy will be completely unaffected because they will not come across the, the virus. The problem now, of course, is, is so much of it around. And I think what is really important is that we keep track of the, the women who have been vaccinated in pregnancy and that we follow this up very, very carefully. And, but I don't think we should say uh, we should exclude the pregnant women from the vaccination campaigns because there are clearly women who are pregnant who have really suffered from COVID and uh, some of them who, um, you know, have ended up in intensive care. Whether that was because of the pregnancy or because of other factors is another question. So in terms of getting, you know, getting any, any uh, sort of nasty side effects from the vaccine on the fetus, if I was the, the pregnant woman who had to make the decision, I would not necessarily want to be vaccinated in the first three months of my pregnancy, because that's the more likely time when things go wrong in pregnancy anyway. And then maybe I would have it in my head that that could have to do with the vaccine, although there's no proven link. So I advise uh, people who ask me that uh, they leave it till after the, the first trimester. And we give plenty of other vaccines in pregnancy against whooping cough, flu, et cetera. And they're doing absolutely fine. Pauline. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to add, because I can see some questions. And thank you so much for sharing your experiences around patient concerns. Is I didn't mention it because I, I didn't want to to go on for too long in my presentation but we do have some ongoing and future projects that are really exciting um one is an ongoing project it's a global project investigating public sentiments and emotions around containment and treatment of covid this started before there were vaccines around so so we were looking at we still are social isolation physical distancing prohibition of travel and social gatherings and we're looking globally in 17 countries we're doing social media monitoring and also surveys to try and understand what influence the public's confidence in acceptance of future prevention and treatment options and and another study we're doing as part of the health protection research unit is we're doing a survey in the UK with health and social care workers uh, with running surveys and in-depth interviews and we're going to do that in the next few weeks to understand so this is great actually this is great uh, information to help um, with the survey we're just finalizing it so views intentions experiences of covid vaccination with, with health and social care workers so and we're also really interested because i saw someone was talking about different um different people from different ethnic groups or different backgrounds as well so so for this study we're going to be looking at minority ethnic backgrounds as well to see if there are different views or if there are different concerns to, to unpick that if that's there and try and understand it so, sorry that we lost your will but you're back which is great <laughs> yes thanks Pauline and Beata thanks for <laughs> thanks for holding the thought for me while my internet uh, I kind of uh, yeah had a moment yes excellent <laughs> Um, I missed the last bit, so um, let's see, where should we pick things up from? I think the, the bit that I can see people are struggling with are those questions yes. around long-term effects. 
And I think we, you know, we can't bullshit around this because we don't yet know what the long-term effects could be. Again, it's, I think what could be reassuring is that you tell people, and this is true for any vaccine, that the effects, side effects of vaccines usually manifest themselves within the first two weeks. So these are very local and you know systemic things, and and the, their long-term side effects are extremely, extremely rare. And you have to really weigh them up against the risk of the disease against which you're trying to prevent. You know, all of you on this talk have on this chat know about long COVID. So you know the people are exposing themselves to the risk of getting a really nasty viral infection, which could have long-term effects, and yet they're worried about a theoretical you know, small, small, small risk that is not yet tangible in something that might never happen. And I think that's the, the sort of equation that you need to kind of put in front of people so they get, get a slightly better idea about their risk. And I know risk is a difficult concept and Pauline yes. will have lots more to say about risk. Yes, that's really interesting. And, and on the topic of um, um, side effects with the vaccine, a, a little personal anecdote. I, I, have, I was fortunate to have my second dose of the Pfizer vaccine a couple of days ago. And uh, lucky me, I know. Um, uh, but I got completely nailed by the... Um, I, I, I was... I was lying on the floor the next day with a temperature of 38.3 with my toddler beating me with wooden bricks. I, I just had nothing. But then I was fine again by the evening. Um, so I, please post in the chat if you had side effects with, with your vaccine. Um, if so, what, what kind of things have you experienced and has that put you off being vaccinated uh, again? Um, Pauline, one, one thing you uh, raised in terms of patients' perception of risk, there was that really nice um, paper in there by Birch et al, which mm. was looking at behavioural insights, and it looks at the way that people appreciate risk, not just from a cognitive perspective, but although there's also an effective dimension to it. And um, for, for me, this played out in the Brexit, the referendum on the mm. EU. I felt like the the Remain campaign very much, it was a more of a cognitive, factual campaign, whereas the Leave campaign was perhaps more uh, appealing to people's emotional um, side. And I, th both these, th these components are very important in, in people's evaluation of risk and how we can um, change their behavior around vaccinations. Could you shed a, a little bit more light on, on, that, on that side of things? Yeah, of course. Um, and one thing we do re uh, research at the Vaccine Confidence Project are emotions. I mean, it's so important. I mean, and they tend to get forgotten, don't they? Like people want to research facts and data and, and forget about these emotions. It, it is so important and they do influence our decisions. So, and as I think it's Paul, Paul Slovic, um, has written a, a great book and some articles on risk as feelings versus risks as facts. And vaccine experts that are communicating around vaccines usually focus on the risks as facts and give numbers and give data. Whereas people, they respond better to stories and videos and, um, and, and this can go to the detriment of vaccine success, uh, vaccine program success as well. So um, with, let me just see. I, I hope people can hear me because the other videos have frozen. Oh yeah, okay, good. Um, so for example, with the HPV vaccine, the human papilloma virus vaccine, in Japan, there were videos of teenagers having um, side effects or so having spasms and having um, fits, seizures, that the parents were saying was due to the vaccines. Now this is very emotive and it did cause a lot of hesitancy and it did cause a drop in coverage. So, um, and also, oh, we've lost Will again. <laughs> Um, but there, in Japan, there was a lack of 
a coordinated response from the government. So, so well, the response was that uh, they were no longer recommending the vaccine. So as a result of this, the coverage was very one-sided and, and vaccination coverage went from 70% to less than 1% of for HPV vaccine. So, so risk is feelings, it's such an important thing to, to measure and also understand and make sure that we're listening and acknowledging as well. It's really key. I think the point you make there, uh, Pauline, about the perception of risk as an emotion as, a, as opposed to a fact or how you can antagonize it, it plays into the observations that we've always had that healthcare workers themselves play such an important role. And I've seen on the chat that people said, you know, if I said, I, or patients were asking, would you have the vaccine? And if you have confidence in that decision and you say, yeah, I would have it for this and this reason, you are probably more likely to persuade that person than as if you'd given them 10 articles of the clinical trials. And which is why I, I feel, you know, the, the factual background is helpful, but it's not the uh, be it and end it. And the positions that we take as healthcare professionals in that, it's really important. And I like the, the comment from our colleague in, in Africa, Musa, talking about uh, that you know in low-income countries the discussion is totally different from or in Africa in particular uh, very different from what uh, we see in high-income countries so there is some granularity as well with regards to you know is it a risk-benefit thing or is it purely a question of access or you know do people feel the system isn't working for them and I think that's those are themes that we also found in our Bami communities in the UK. Uh, sorry, you lost me again there. Uh, another a question that's come in is around um, whether the UK government's change to uh, from uh, having uh, from administering both doses, so that's the, the, the initial dose and then the dose at three weeks, to just trying to vaccinate as many people with one single dose. Do you think that's had a negative impact on vaccine confidence in the, amongst the general public and health workers? I mean, it's difficult. We haven't done the research yet, so it's difficult to know. But I think um, I think it's I mean, the government have to be really careful with managing the pandemic and how they're they're changing decisions quite quickly. And I know that data's coming in for their decision making, but but it's really important that their decisions based on science and that it's really transparent. Um, but I think at the, in the UK, we're quite lucky because we are well, lucky um, that we have this joint committee of vaccines and immunisation and they do um have regular meetings and also you can find them online the jcvi you can find the minutes of the meeting so so you can find the minutes and i was looking at this before this as well on when they made the decision to say yes this is a good idea to let's vaccinate more people sooner with the first dose and and extend that gap uh, Beata, did you have anything you wanted yeah, to? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've spent the last week arguing this on various media in the UK. Um, so I think the, the communication around that has been very difficult. Uh, whilst people get the idea that, you know, the first, the first shot got, should go to as many people as possible, people also want to make sure that they're properly protected by the end of the day. And I think it has, uh, you know, eroded confidence a bit, particularly healthcare professionals. I mean, I was doing vaccinations uh, at Imperial this morning and, uh, you know, people were saying, well, if we're not getting the second dose, we might not bother with this vaccine and wait for the other one, you know. So um, I think the communication around there has not been well managed. Okay, so Bill Rollings would like to know, um, how would you address concerns around new mutations, new variants, and whether the vaccine we have now will still be fit for purpose as this 
um, as this uh, virus mutates further. What are your thoughts on that? I think, I guess, from my perspective, I would just say, well, you need to acknowledge concerns. The concerns are real. Let's not brush them off. I mean, they're real concerns, aren't they? But and also be transparent. So I guess it depends how different countries are dealing with this um, lack of information, lack of data so far and how they're communicating with their public. But I think it's really important that communication is timely, that it's transparent, that it's OK to sometimes say we don't have that information yet. Um, but we're trying to find that information and also sharing the information we do have. But but it really is like with this pandemic, it's really a lesson of epidemiology. Like the, the general public is learning what an R number is. The general public are finding out about vaccine trials. They never normally would have found out about what's going on with all these different uh, vaccine trials. Whereas now every time there's... Um, there's a finding or a new trial ending, it's in the media, it's all over the shop. So, so people are really um, getting much more information than they ever have. But that's because as well, this pandemic has, is impacting all of us. I mean, it's really changed, changed the way all of us behave like no other infectious disease has. So. Yeah, it certainly has, hasn't it? Um, yeah. I thought it was very interesting, um, Pauline, in your slides, you talked about how uh, lower income households are much um, less likely to accept a COVID vaccine. Do you think, is that a, a, an issue? And is that going to widen already existing healthcare inequalities? Yeah, definitely. I think it's something that's, it's so key. And in the UK, we are trying to reduce inequalities, but we need to do more. And I think our, our research highlighted this issue, but we need, to, we don't know, like this was a survey and we did look at the open text um, responses to try and find out a bit more, but we didn't find any particular reasons. But I think this, we need to find out more and um, this research needs to continue. But also in terms of, and I tried to say it in my presentation as well, but, but with these vaccines becoming available, it's great in the UK that, that it's not possible to get it privately, that it is being given to everyone, that it's free. But we've got to make sure that as a, as a globe, as a you know, community, that we're being equitable globally. Um, I, I was asking about side effects uh, earlier and Baby GC on Facebook says uh, that they had the first dose of the COVID vaccine. They then had 24 hours of fever, chills, severe headache, uh, but they previously had COVID themselves, the disease back in September. And they're interested to know whether they're more likely to have more pronounced side effects if they've already had COVID before. Uh, do, could either of you shed light on that, on the relationship between the vaccine side effects and, and someone who's previously had a positive COVID status? Yeah, so maybe that's more for me than uh, for you, yes. Pauline. <laughs> so it goes a bit more into the biology. So um, yes. one could argue that if you had COVID before, you already have antibody. Therefore, the second, the first dose that you get is almost like the booster dose already. And it might depend on the interval uh, between your COVID disease and uh, getting the vaccine. And, uh, you know, we're meant to leave at least 28 days. Uh, you could argue you could leave it a little bit longer because you will still be on the on the slope and plateau of your antibody. Um, I think side effects are a very personal thing, and uh, you know the, there were people involved in the trials who also had COVID before, and we didn't see that. Or I, I haven't seen in the data that there was a difference in the side effect profile. But there isn't that level of granularity to really say you know this interval made a difference, etc. So I think it's plausible, and I wished you know as we were filling in the register 
administer for these vaccines that we would capture the information because it would be very easy on the NHS, uh, well, in the system that we work, to have one box that says had COVID before or didn't have COVID before, and that would have been a very low hanging fruit and uh, it's not captured, which is, a, I think, a miss, a missed opportunity. Sudakshina Murdan wants to know uh, whether we understand why the take-up of the flu vaccine is higher in certain healthcare, healthcare practitioner groups, such as doctors, and lower in others, such as nurses. Why, why would there be, perhaps, a, do we have any understanding on why there's difference between those groups and, and what might underlie that? Yeah, um, that's so, so interesting, isn't it? And we did, um, as part of the Health Protection Research Unit with my colleagues who are here, so do feel free to to, to post in the chat or the Q&A as well, if you remember something, I might not. But um, we did see that, and I guess it depends on the trust as well, but in, it depends on the trust, actually. So in some trusts, nurses were actually, there were, there were more vaccine, like higher vaccination coverage than doctors. I mean, it, it's so, but it's so context specific, isn't it? Because some trust there'll be a different cultural norm like different things that worked was it was actually quite a lot to do with the administration so so being very like the trusts that had better organized staff or more staff allocated actually it depended and, and my colleagues will say but in some trusts they were very organized and there was a lot of staff that were helping with the vaccine rollout for flu in other trusts there were less staff and more peer vaccinators and that tended to work. It was really difficult to unpick exactly what was happening and why some were doing better than others. But there was also a culture of, it's good to get vaccinated, a bit of competition as well, like, or having a sweet, like having a pot of sweets, if you got vaccinated, you get a sweet. Like there were a lot of, we've lost well again, but there were a lot of different things. And we've put, uh, done a paper, if one of my colleagues- yeah, Sandra, was... Sandra has posted the link there um, at 8.12 to panelists and attendees on the flu by profession C, and she's put the, the web link there. It's so amazing, amazing. So have a look at our paper. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's interesting. For yeah. us it was, uh, for example, um, in pediatrics, we were vaccinating each other as medics. So we would come to the handover in the evening and we would give each other the jab. So that was incredibly easily accessible. And I don't know if it's always that easy for the nurses, but I also generally think that the nurses are a little bit more apprehensive. Um, I mean, I shouldn't generalize, but uh, the whole issue of side effects, long-term effects, women childbearing age, there is a more of a reluctance uh, in the nursing profession than I've seen in the doctors. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see. So with our new survey looking at COVID vaccine, we are asking about people's profession as well. So it'd be interesting to see in our survey um, whether there is a difference or not. So um, we've lost Will, but I could just pick it back. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, chaps, I am back, yes. <laughs> Um, I like this question here um, by Kim Jones. Thank you. And I will, of course, say all the third, but what about Joe Bloggs, who is at home wanting to make an informed decision on whether or not to vaccinate? I think this is about accessibility of information, right? And what role can the media or, you know, how can we put out information there that is easily accessible to people that is not just university websites and all the rest of it? And yeah, what are your takes on that? Yeah, I think um, it'd be really interesting to hear your experiences as well. And I, I see that Helen Bedford's in the crowd as well and has a lot of experience with um, with health visitors and healthcare provi uh, professionals and how how to help address um, questions and concerns as well. So Helen, do do post some other links as well. I see you've posted one. Um, yeah, it's, it's so important, isn't it? And how 
different people will respond to different uh, way, different information. And also uh, we did some, well, the Public Health England did some surveys looking at attitudes towards vaccines. And the majority of people in, in the UK, I mean, vaccination coverage is very high. It's over 90%. And the majority of people will just vaccinate. They'll vaccinate without really thinking about it or they'll vaccinate because the healthcare provider recommends it. Uh, and then there are people who have questions and then people will go to the internet to find information. But also when we do interview people around childhood vaccines, um, they're also pretty, you know, careful. Like you've got to trust the public, don't you? Like the majority of the public will go to the NHS website. They will go to the, to the relevant places to get information. But, but there is also more and more misinformation out there. And there are websites that look legit that are spreading misinformation. So, so it, it is becoming a bit more difficult and, and it is an issue that needs um, more examination. But Pauline, do you think that the majority of people really would like to trust their healthcare professionals? Oh yeah, the majority of people do. Vaccines and pregnancy, we've seen it with, uh, you know, the now the the COVID vaccines to some degree as well. I think the the way that the healthcare professionals can find the information is really quite important, so that they feel they can they can earn the trust of the people that they would like to get involved in the vaccines. So here, what's really important as well is for these healthcare professionals that are vaccinating the public against COVID that that they feel that their answers their questions have been answered and that they feel confident in in answering these questions as well so so yeah so do let us know if you if you are vaccinating members of the public and you don't feel confident and you don't know where to go because that's really key to to help um, support each other as well and there's a great free resource, um, the, the Practitioner's Guide to the Principles of COVID Vaccine Communication that um, your uh, organisation has been working on, isn't it, Pauline? It uh, gives some uh, insights around taking time to understand people's views, using trusted messengers, uh, the idea of transparency um, and evoking more constructive emotions, like this idea of con confidence rather than hesitancy. Uh, I'll post the link uh, to that in, in the chat box, but that's a really great tool for um, for anyone here that's having those kind of conversations, both with patients and, and, and colleagues, and even indeed themselves if they're if they're not quite sure. Mm. Um, let's have a look what else we've got here. The one thing maybe to add there, just from personal experience, um, I think especially mm. if you're in a hierarchical relationship. So there were some some questions here about uh, people having found uh, that it's more other members of staff who've been reluctant and you know I've, I felt myself that if I went on to the pediatric ward and I sort of spoke to the nurses and we had some spare doses and I wanted to ask them why isn't anyone coming up if if they felt beleaguered then they would go into a sort of defensive mode and and you know that's not the time to try and drill the fact into them that they really have a duty to get vaccinated so what I then did is I just brought down some more of the leaflets that we are giving to um, people who are getting the vaccine, like the information leaflets, etc., and just left it with them. You know, the, I think you, there isn't much point in trying to push people into a corner. I, I think we'll we'll antagonise the whole thing by that doing that. Yeah, and I just yes, I just wanted to add this. Um, I'm sure most of you have heard about this, but motivational interviewing. If you haven't heard, WHO have a great module where you can learn about motivational interviewing as well, which is very much a keeping questions open, keeping the conversation open, sorry. So, so having more open questions about, um, about how people feel about vaccines, but also keeping the door open. So if, 
if they don't want to vaccinate that day, that they can always come back to you after reading a bit more information or something. Will, are you still there? Oh gosh. Oh gosh, is he frozen again? Okay, well, 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 read through. Well, I was gonna say, well, while you're reading, I was gonna say here at the moment, it does feel like, because the media do love to say, oh, we've got big issues and, and no, and like there's a high proportion of people who don't wanna vaccinate, but actually, what? In, most people want the vaccine and there's not enough vaccine. So, so at the moment, I mean, things are good, but I, while well, we were looking as well, so there was an, an example with dengue vaccine, which was a new vaccine, where in the Philippines there was a vaccine scare and then it actually wasn't well managed and it derailed the whole vaccination program. So there was a, a lack of trust in childhood vaccines, even in deworming treatments, so other treatments. So it really does show that um, with new vaccines, you've really got to be careful that, that you don't uh, derail the success of current vaccination programs. So we do need to be cautious as well. So um, there was a question here about the vaccine equity, I think, and uh, I think that's something where we all have to work towards because there's no need for whatever 350 million doses in the UK when there are people in developing countries uh, who also you know, need vaccination of their most vulnerable people, otherwise their health system gets overrun. So I think we all have a, a role to play there also as healthcare professionals, but that's just my... Yeah, and I think someone was asking how how can they? So I guess um, there's COVAX. Would you like yeah. to explain? So COVAX is an international initiative uh, from the WHO and CEPI and Gavi that uh, is trying to raise enough funds to have 20% of the world population vaccinated. And uh, you know, high-income countries have donated money and vaccine supplies to that initiative already. And low-income countries who are usually get their vaccines from Gavi can apply to that pot to then get access to those doses. But you know, there is, of course, a degree of vaccine nationalism going on right now. People want to use the vaccines that were made by their own countries. You know, Serum Institute in India is reserved, I don't know, 500 million doses for India, you know, AstraZeneca for the UK, Sanofi GSK for France, I mean, you name it, you know, uh, Moderna for the US, it's, uh, you, we can't look past that. Um, but, you know, that's not a hesitancy issue. So let's maybe put it back to Will, who's now back with us. Yes. yes. Question from Audrey Yeo. She wants to know why uh, Asian groups are more hesitant than other groups. Pauline, this came up in, in your survey. Can yeah, you so expand on that. Yeah, we didn't actually find the the reasons. Like we couldn't we couldn't identify it. But I think further researchers needed. I mean, so I'm not sure whether so Asian groups in particular, but it was the BAME communities. We didn't look specifically at Asian groups, but um, so yeah. there was more hesitancy. But this we did this in April May, and also we asked parents of young children, and it was a select group of people. I think someone else asked um how we recruited. So here we recruited via uh, parent and toddler groups. <laughs> and um, and we so we did parent and toddler groups and different kind of organizations like public organizations, uh, health, yeah, for the public. And and also we had a advert on Facebook. So it wasn't a representative sa sample, but we just wanted to understand a bit more. And we, you know, we had a fair number of people. So it did give an indication of something going on. We just, we don't know yet. And I think more needs to be done to find out. So we're gonna, when we're doing our surveys and interviews with healthcare, for health and social care workers, we're gonna try and unpick that as well to see if we can find that. Mm. 
Yeah. So thank you. And I saw yeah, Joe Yarwood send me a public health England as well, sorry. So thank you for, for responding as well in the chat. So what do you think, uh, pass on to you, Pauline, what do you think is the next big area of research? Where, where, where are the big gaps in our knowledge around vaccine confidence? I think, I mean, this is the, the beauty of it for me, because I find it fascinating, but also is it's, it's always ongoing and it's always, you need to find out, you just need to keep listening, you need to keep engaging. And, and um, I think you, you had a poor internet connection at that point, but with the dengue vaccine program in the Philippines, um, there was a vaccine scare that happened there and it really completely derailed the National Childhood Immunization Program and also other health treatments. So there was a huge lack of trust and it was badly managed possibly, but also these things can get out of control quite quickly. So we just have to be very careful because the, the, um, the UK program is highly successful. We just have to be careful that with this uh, rollout to the COVID vaccine that it doesn't impact on the childhood vaccination program on, on the vaccination programs. Okay, I think we've got time perhaps for one more question. Uh, and interesting from Eco in Indonesia. Um, so they're using Sinovac as a first line vaccine for health workers. I'm not familiar with that vaccine. Are, are you familiar with that, uh, Beata or Pauline? The, yeah, it's one of the Chinese vaccines. Yeah, okay. And they, they, she's raised that, that there are some religious doubts about the vaccine. So Indonesia being the most populous Muslim country in the world. Um, so they've actually involved some religious figures, religious leaders to help um, give some more, a more positive PR to, to vaccination. Very interesting. I suppose UK, um, we've uh, haven't had that same kind of issue. That seems to be very um, interesting, huge cultural difference between somewhere like UK and Indonesia. Um, we've talked about ethnicity, we've talked about socioeconomic status, but do we have any uh, any data on how religious background or beliefs can impact upon vaccine confidence? Yeah, and we did. So the um, the graph I gave, well, not the graph, the world map view, I looked at vaccines are safe. I, I, I illustrated that, but we also look at vaccines are compatible with my religious beliefs. So although the, the vaccine confidence index uh, is very, it's kind of general, but we have seen in the UK as well, there's been a little bit of... Um, for, for other vaccines, not with COVID, we haven't seen it. But yeah, I think it's really important to, to look at that and to explore it and to understand. But that's a great idea to, 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 I mean, you need to, don't you? You need to engage religious figures, leaders, community leaders. So we, we need everyone on board and we need everyone communicating similar, the same or similar messaging. And that's really key. Some think, of these issues, yes. well, some of these issues relate to ingredients in vaccines. So, uh, you know, porcine, gelatin, etc., is not acceptable to the Muslim community, for example. Or some people think uh, vaccines are grown on eggs, and if they've got an egg allergy, you know, there's a, a huge thing. But it's important that people um, get access to the facts about that because for quite a few of those ingredients, it's actually a myth. They're not made that way anymore. And uh, the vaccine manufacturers have taken those concerns much more seriously now as well. So it's worth, you know, reiterating that there could be some new facts, and also, um, you know, healthcare professionals can play a role in trying to find those because that's a bit tricky sometimes. 
Yes, thank you. Well, thank you both. I think it's time we drew this session to a close before my internet dies on us again. Thank you to Beata and Pauline for um, uh, so graciously keeping the conversation going. Um, and I'd just, just like to give either of you the opportunity to, to share any kind of final thoughts that you had on this topic. If you could just give our, our audience one take home message on the topic of vaccine confidence. Let's start with you, Beata. What would it be? So for now, I think we can be really pleased in the context of COVID that we, we have gotten as far as we've gotten. And, and, you know, I'd really think people should not worry too much about mutants and why it might not work and this and that and another. And they should really throw all their weight behind it because it is a fantastic tool and we should really make the biggest effort we could possibly have to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. So that would be my wish for the new year or for the new three next three months. That's a great thing to wish for. Pauline. Yeah, I just want to say thank you to everybody and as well for all the interesting chats and questions and there's so many experts in the room as well so I don't feel like my, my voice might be the, the final points but um, I just wanted to say yeah thank you I mean it's such a key point isn't it I'm feeling very hopeful for the spring I think amazing work is being done has been done and I feel like um, incredible progress and but it's so key isn't it to 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 keep listening, keep engaging, keep acknowledging questions, concerns, and, and working together as a community. And, and people want the vaccine, the majority of people want the vaccine, but we just need to figure out if some people aren't vaccinating, why they're not vaccinating and address those reasons. Thank you. Yes, that's such a nice note to, to end on. Um, if you want to know more about the Vaccine Confidence Project, really important piece of work going on. I've posted the link in the chat, so go and have a look at that now. And also if you want to more content like this, check out the podcast, check out the WEM Facebook page, check out the Academy and our conference. All those links are in the chat as well. Thank you to all of you who've tuned in. Thanks for bearing with us with our uh, inevitable technical hiccups and um, all your great questions and, and the engagement that you've shown to us. I'm sorry we haven't managed to get through all the questions that have come in. The engagement has been really, really good for this session. Uh, and we're very, very privilege to have such a high level of expertise uh, in, in our guests today. So Pauline and Beata, your, um, your insights have been so valuable for, for everyone. So thank you so, so much. Thanks for inviting us. Thank Great. you. Thanks, everybody. All right. Then we'll, we'll sign off. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Thank you.